Good morning, everybody. I want to start by asking you a simple question. Where do you place your hope? Now, I know for some of us, most of us here, we're probably like, in Jesus, right? But we talk a lot about hope this time of the year, this season, right? Or things we hope for for Christmas. But the reality is we have a greater hope that we hold on to as believers. And yet on a day-to-day basis, that hope often falters. There's a story, uh, a tragic story, um, of a girl who's around six or seven years old. And uh, tragically, her parents pass away. Uh, now, normally, in a, in a normal system, like the, that ch- the, the child would, would go to the next of kin. They would, they would live with a, with a relative. Or if they don't have a relative, then they would go into some form of like foster care or, or they'd be adopted. But unfortunately for this girl, she was imprisoned. She was locked in her house, almost no social contact whatsoever. The, 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 even the, like not allowed to go out, windows closed, doors closed. And she grew up in this, desiring a relationship, hoping that one day she would get to go outside of, this, uh, of these walls. One day she'd get to have relationship again. And years went by until she found herself in her early 20s. In her early 20s, one morning when, when she felt hope was fading, she wakes up to, realize, to find out the doors are unlocked. The windows have been open. And she becomes excited about this, this new life, this new possibility that lay ahead of her. And, and then she finds out, wait, there's, there's also going to be a big, a big party in the town that night. She's going to get to meet all the strangers that she's never met before. And she goes to the party and she's so excited. When she arrives, she, there's dancing and there's singing and there's great food. And she meets a guy. And this man sweeps her off her feet. She falls in love with him. This is, this is the relationship she's been hoping for. This is the relationship she's been waiting for. She realizes that their mental synchronization can have but one explanation. They were just meant to be. Now, many of you guys know the plot of the movie Frozen, right? Despite Elsa's please not to marry this guy, She she proposes to him on that night, right? And Anna believes this guy's the one. And then possibly the best twist in any Disney movie, Hans turns out not to be a great guy, right? This king that she'd put her hope in ends up leaving her for dead while he goes off to try to murder her sister. It's a great family film. The problem that Anna faced was that she placed her hope in this relationship. She wanted this thing that she knew of so badly that she was blinded by the problems that lay in front of her. Well, we've been talking about the nation of Israel. As we've been going through the Bible, we've started at Genesis. And over the last several months, and and for the rest of the year, we're going to be going through the entire Bible. And what we've identified so far is Israel has been selected by God. God is going to be their king. Okay. In uh, Exodus 6, 7 through 8, it says, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. 
You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the, for, uh, from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God has chosen this people. He's going to be their king, right? And we find that like they're crying out for God in the land of Egypt. And God, in his compassion and his mercy, rescues his people. He brings them out. And then they're in the wilderness. And God provides food for them. And he cares for them. And then he leads them to the land that he's promised them. And he says, hey, you know what, guys? I invented you. I know what makes you tick. And so he gives them the law. He says, hey, guys, if you want to live a great life, if you want to live a life that's pleasing to me, if you want to know what's best for you, then you should do these things. So he gives them the law, and he, and, and he gives them people to, to enforce that law. And then he leads them into the promised land, the land he's sworn to them. And he, he, they have incredible victory. They enter into the land and get to claim it as their new home. And despite God's provision, despite God, the victories they've seen, despite God demonstrating this continuous care and compassion and grace and forgiveness of his people, they continue to fall into sin. They continue to reject God. And so throughout the book of Judges, we saw this continued rejection, right? They reject God, they fall into sin, and as a result... The enemies rage against them, and they're, they're facing hardship, and they cry out to God, and then God, in his, in his, in his mercy, sends a judge. And then the judge, got, basically, God uses the judge to free his people. And the people are, are jubilant. They're praising God. And then memory fades, and their own desires consume them. And suddenly, they're doing whatever they want again. And so at the end of the book of Judges, we see just disgusting, some of the most disgusting stories in the Bible, right? Just like chaos and anarchy and moral bankruptcy is happening. And there's this continued phrase in there that says, in those days, uh, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever that seemed right to them. Well, that seems nice, except God's already told them what was right. Why are they doing what seems right to them, right? What, what this is saying is they're not applying God's moral code. They're not applying God's standard of obedience. Instead, they've, their hearts have drifted, and they're saying, well, it seems good to me. It's something that I think a lot of us as Christians are, can be pretty guilty of, right? We like to be the judge. We like to be the one who determines what's good and what's right. Right? We, we oftentimes will give ourselves leniency. We'll oftentimes allow ourselves little sins, tolerable sins, instead of looking to what God says. And in the case of Judges, we see when, that's, when that is fleshed out, it goes down some really dark places because the people who are doing what seems right to them are doing some heinous acts. And Throughout the, throughout the passages, we see uh, God leading the people of Israel into this land, and they have success and victory. And then they look at the nations around them, who they've been conquering. Yes, there's been ongoing wars. But they look at the nations around them and say, hey, you know what? Let's not follow God anymore. Let's be like them. Because they're onto something over here with this king thing, right? 
We like, it looks pretty cool to have a human king. And so you see this, them decide, hey, we want to be like the nations around us. We don't want to have God as our king. And so they go to Samuel, the high priest, and they tell him, hey, we want a king. We want a king instead of God. And so this, we'll pick up in 1 Samuel 8, 6 through 9. If you guys want to turn there, uh, we'll be in this passage for a little bit this morning. It says, when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord, but the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing to you uh, that they have done to me ever since the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Now imagine what a slap in the face this is to God. God rescues his people, provides for his people, makes good on his promises, leads them into the land. And when they follow him and they obey him, things go great. But the people of Israel say, no, we don't want that. We want something else. And they begin to put their hope in a human king, in a man king. And, and, they, and they, start to, they start to want to kind of what Paul would later refer to in Romans as conform to the patterns of this world. They wanted to look like everybody else around them. A lot of us as believers can fall into that same trap too. Right? We want to look like the world around us. We want to live by their standards. We want to be accepted and embraced because that kind of feels nice. And we can look at people who are wealthy or famous or whatever, and we can think, that's great. I want that because we have selfish hearts with selfish desires. And so we can make these changes and begin to put our hope in those things and desire and long after those things and build our life around accumu- uh, like making money and, and, and building up a, a great retirement fund and, and amassing influence or power. But God calls them to something different here. See, the issue here is that they're rejecting God. And and by asking for a king, the rejection of God and demand for an earthly king was a political manifestation of spiritual problem. God wasn't good enough. Where do we put our hope? Like, if I asked most of you, you'd say, yeah, of course God's good enough. But on a day-to-day basis, so often, we can decide to take matters into our own hands. When life gives us problems, rather than going to God, rather than trusting Him, we rely on our own thoughts, our own desires, our own schemes. Our hope becomes in our happiness. Our hope becomes in material possessions. Our hope becomes in what we define as success. And so, as a result of this, Israel is going to be handed over to their desires. We see in Psalm 81, 11 through 14, this is oftentimes the way that God handles people when they reject him. It says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own plans. 
If only my people would listen to me and Israel would follow my ways, I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. You know, sometimes in life we have, we have a pretty view, skewed view of trials, right? Oftentimes if there's anything adverse in our life, we want it out, out of there. Right? And sometimes God allows trials in our lives because we, he knows that by, by the testing of our faith, we develop perseverance and we grow into the likeness of Christ. Right? And, and, and so often we pray those trials away, but the reality is if we go to God faithfully through them and place our faith and our hope in him, we grow. Other times trials happen because God allows us to have the desires of our heart. And that's exactly what's going to happen here with Israel. Israel has said, no, we, we want something else, something other than God. We have a different standard. God says, all right, you're going to have it. And it's not going to go well. In fact, God's going to give them a warning about what will happen when they have a king. He already gave it in the book of Deuteronomy. But he's going to have Samuel repeat it and warn the people about this. And it's ultimately going to be the very thing that ends up being the demise of, the, of this earthly kingdom. In uh, 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 19, we read what God has told him. Samuel is, is telling the people of Israel what is going to be expected of a king. He said, these are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them uh, to his use in his chariots, on his horses, and running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them, uh, appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties, to plow his ground and reap his harvest, or to make his weapons of war, and the weapons for his, and the weapons for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best, best fields, vineyards, all, uh, olive orchards, and give them to, to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them over to the officials and their servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle, and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks, and, your, and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out to the Lord, or to cry out to the king, you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you that day. What a crazy decision they are facing here. God is giving them this warning. Hey, if you choose a king, everything that you own can be taken by him. All your property, your family members, you yourself can be taken as a servant. Now, you can have this king and he might lead you into battles, and you might have some victories, or you can follow me. The one with a proven track record, the one who loves you, the one who hasn't made these types of, of demands. This is the scale. This is the absurdity of the decision they're making. This is the rejection of their king. And before we you know, cast judgment on the people of Israel, man, so often we find ourselves doing the same thing, right? When we walk in disobedience, when we say, God, I know what you're saying. I know what you're asking of me. I, I know that you are the Lord and you've given me these commands, but you know what? I'm going this way. There's like, there's this, we see it. It's so evident here. It's absurd to make that choice. And yet the people of Israel say, nah, we still want a king. That sounds good. That sounds really nice to us. 
The problem with a lot of us is sometimes, it's very rare, I think, that as Christians, we will we'll be like, oh, I know what you say, God, but no. Right? Like, yeah, we do have blatant disobedience, but so often what happens is we become, as, as we continue down that line of disobedience, a lot of time that conviction that we have in our heart, where we hear the word of God saying, don't do that. Where we've silenced it so much by disobeying that all of a sudden we no longer hear it. And it becomes easier and more familiar for us to just reject what God says. And so we end up doing this thing where we're we're sinning. We're in active disobedience. And yet we don't even know. We don't even recognize it. We're not, we don't have that little pinprick of conviction that says, go to the Lord, confess, repent, turn from your ways. And so we continue down this line. So Israel has decided, nah, we want a new king. God's warned them. So we can all kind of guess about how well this is going to go. And we see what's next uh, in 1 Samuel 10. We see Saul's coronation ceremony. All right, and I want to read this for you because I think it's comical. It says uh, in verse 17, Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the, Lord of, uh, to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I have brought you, brought Israel up out of Egypt. I have delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all of the calamities and distresses. And you have said, no, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Then he brought forward the tribe of, uh, from, brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan. And Matri's clan was chosen. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yeah. He's over there hidden himself among the baggage. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man that the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the other people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. There is an absurdity to this, right? Can you imagine? You're the nation of Israel. You have nations warring against you. And perhaps one of the reasons you want a king is because he's going to lead you into battle and you're going to win. And you're like, yeah, let's go. We're gonna, the king's going to be announced today. He's going to be crowned. Everybody gather together. And you gather together and you're like, we've chosen our king. The great courageous warrior who's going to go before us and give us victory in battle. Hey, where is he? He's over there cowering away. He's afraid, right? Hiding behind the baggage. You, you can almost like imagine the, the people there like, that's going to be the guy? Well, at least he's tall. It's, it, it's, it's ridiculous, right? And yet that kind of helps emphasize the nature and the absurdity of going against our God. We'll see how this, this kingship ultimately plays out. Uh, almost from the very get-go, the second battle Saul ever's in, he, he's told in 1 Samuel 10, uh, 1 Samuel 10, 8, he's given these instructions. All right, it says, go down, uh, go down ahead of me to Gilgal, 
This is Samuel speaking. He says, I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offering and fellowship offering. But you must wait seven days until I come to you, and then I will tell you what to do. So Saul goes out to march against the Philistine army. And he's there. And things are getting a little tense. And he's getting a little scared. And he waits seven days. Like, seven days are here. But before the seven days even complete, he says, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to take this into my own hands. And he quickly gathers stuff together and he makes a sacrifice that the priest was supposed to do. He's disobeying God. He's disobeying Samuel. He's doing the act that the priest is supposed to do. And as soon as he's made this offering, Samuel comes up. He's like, what are you doing? Dude, you had one job, one rule to follow here. Saul was exhibiting a heart and a trend that we'll see played out where he does not wait on the Lord. He's not trusting in God. He leans on his own understanding. And so as a result, Samuel rebukes him and ultimately says, listen, because you've done this, because you've rejected what God has told you to do, the kingdom is no longer going to be yours. It's not, no longer going to be like passed down through your descendants. It's going to go to another king. Shortly thereafter, uh, Saul is told by God to go. And God says, listen, go out and kill all the Amalekites. I'm going to use you as a judge against them. They've sinned against me. Go out. You're going to destroy every living thing. And Saul goes out and, and he does exactly what God said. He kills every living thing. That was worthless. If it had value, he kept it. And so he returns from the battlefield and, and he sees, and Samuel's like, hey, how'd the war go? Looks like you did pretty well. And Saul's like, oh, yeah, it went great. Won. We won. It was cool. He's like, oh, well, hey, who's that guy over there with the crown? Oh, oh, that's King Agag. Yeah, I let him live because it's kind of a trophy for me. It looks cool, right? Like, it's a military victory, so he's there. But don't worry, I killed everybody else. Oh, you did? Oh, Samuel looks at him and says, well, what is this bleeding of sheep? Do you, do you hear that, Samuel? What's that? Or do you hear that, Saul? What's that? Bah. Bah. Looks over, there's all these sheep. Oh, don't worry, I killed all the gross sheep. I only saved the best ones, but I did it to sacrifice to God. Right? That's good, right? Sacrifice God. Like, sacrifices, this is what I'm doing. You see Saul caught in his sin. And he does what all of us do. We like to justify it, right? We're really skilled at justifying our sins. We're really skilled at saying, listen, what I'm doing isn't that bad. Everybody else does it. Or I did it, but I did it for good reasons. Listen, it wasn't gossip. I was just explaining what I thought somebody was doing. It wasn't a lie. I, I was just doing it to help protect their feelings. We have all kinds of ways of justifying the sins in our hearts rather than taking ownership of them, rather than walking in obedience. And that's exactly what Samuel says to him. He says, Samuel, obedience is better than sacrifice. God desires us to live lives of obedience. That's the call of every believer. We're not obeying God and trying to live for him because that's going to earn us salvation. In, in Romans 12, God says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. And what he's saying is, listen, die to yourselves. Don't do the things that you want. Follow me. 
Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. And it says, this is your spiritual act of worship. Our obedience to God is our spiritual act of worship. A lot of time we reduce worship to the singing part of the sermon. But the reality is we're called to live lives of worship. When you obey God, you're worshiping him. You're glorifying him. And so Samuel confronts me and says, what are you doing? And now we see the spirit of God is removed from Saul. And to be clear, this wasn't an indwelling. He's not losing salvation, right? But the spirit of God is removed from Saul. It's going to be given to David. Now, Saul remains king for, for about 15 years after this. But it's clear he kind of just starts to descend. 1 Samuel 15.10 says, Then the Lord uh, came to Samuel and says, I regret that I made Saul king. He has turned away and followed me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord at night. Now, just to be clear, God's not saying, oh, I made a mistake. Right? This is what we call uh, anthropopathic. Right? It's where we ascribe human characteristics to God to help us better understand this. Right? The reality is it's more like, listen, God was grieved by this. God just does not approve of this. God is not happy with the actions of Saul. All right? And so Samuel goes out, and it appears that it's kind of secretly, and he goes and anoints David. David's a little shepherd boy. He's probably about 15 years old at the time. Right? He's from the tribe of Judah, which that's a good thing. He, uh, he is a shepherd. He enjoys music. He plays harp. He writes lots of songs and poems. In fact, most of the psalms are going to be written by him. But most importantly, God chooses him, not because he's tall, but because he's a man after God's own heart. He's a man who's put his hope in the Lord. Now, David's not perfect, and the Bible's going to be very clear in showing us that he's not perfect. But God's spirit goes upon David, and now David, we see it manifest in his life, this, this hope that he has in the Lord. It's no longer like Saul who put a hope in himself. His hope is in the Lord. And so that's what allows him to go against somebody like Goliath. David, or I'm sorry, after um, Saul, uh, after the spirit leaves him, Saul actually slips into depression. And, and, and some of Saul's consultants do, I, I love it, it's like such man advice. Hey, you feeling depressed? I got a song that'll cheer you up, right? They say, hey, why don't you get David? He's a good songwriter. He can come in. He'll play you some songs. That'll cheer you up. And honestly, it seems like it kind of works a little bit, right? And David goes and he plays before Saul. And, and they develop this relationship. Jonathan be, or David becomes friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and he finds favor with Saul. And, and, and when the Philistine army marches against him and he's facing Goliath and all of Israel's like, whoa, this guy's terrifying. We can't, we can't face them. David, whose hope is in the Lord, who knows that the victory in the battle belongs to him, is bold enough to go forth. And the reality is David knows something that a lot of us forget. The reality is, we, you know, David, he was a shepherd. He's probably great with a sling. But it's God that wins the war. David could have been throwing it left-handed with a sprained wrist in the wrong direction with his eyes closed, throwing it in the wrong direction, and that stone still would have zipped back, hit Goliath, and killed him. It wasn't about the small man beating the big man. It was about God 
giving the victory because David's hope was in the Lord. And so David finds, is finding favor with God and, and the people of Israel are looking at David and they're like, this guy's awesome. And as David grows up and, and begins to fight in the military, like they're looking at David as this great military mind and he's winning all these battles because he's following and obeying the Lord. The people of Israel begin to, 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 to praise him, right? They're celebrating the streets and they write a song about him that basically says, Saul has killed a thousand men. David has killed 10,000 men. And so Saul burns with anger. He wants to kill David, right? He's got this, this deep-seated jealousy. No, I'm the king here. He doesn't want that competition. He doesn't want adoration of anybody else but him. And so the rest of Saul's life, we find, is basically hunting down David. He's a miserable wreck. And much of the next many years, he's hunting down David, and David has to flee into exile, and he lives among the in enemy territory. And we see this contrast um, when we get to the book of 2 Samuel. Saul passes away. And David waits on the Lord. 2 Samuel 2, 1 says, Sometime later, David inquired the Lord, Should I go back to the town of Judah? David has been living in exile. He knows he's been anointed king 15 years ago, told that he's going to be the king. And yet he's asking God, Is it time now? And you compare that with Saul who couldn't wait seven days before acting on his own. So you see this stark contrast between the two. And David's going to become what's, what's going to be known as the greatest king of Israel, right? David uh, is constantly pointing people to the hope, their hope in the Lord. Psalm 137 says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is, is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. David is continuously pointing his people back to God, back to God, back to God. David is the one who marches on Jerusalem and, and, and captures the city and makes this city in the center of all of Israel, makes it the capital city. That's why it's called the city of David. And then while he's there and he lives in a palace, he says, you know what? I want God to be at the focal point here. And so he wants the Ark of the Covenant to return to the city because the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God among his people. And so there's some stuff that goes on here that's not great. But basically, David ends up bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the, or into the city of David, into Jerusalem. He's, the picture here is the heart or God is going to be at the center. And then David in his palace looks out at the tent he's made for the Ark of the Covenant and he says, I don't like this. I, there's this sense of guilt that overcomes him. He says uh, in 2 Samuel 7, 2, look, I'm living in a cedar house with the, uh, uh, while the ark of God sits inside a tent outside. Right? He's saying, look, I, God should be the one having the better things here, not me. And so he prays to God. And, and there's this, there's this interesting uh, thing that happens when he prays, calls out to God and says, I, you know what? I want to build this temple for God. That'll be the solution. God deserves a temple. And God's response is kind of comical because he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just to be clear, I don't need that, nor do I want that. And I don't need you to make it for me. 
I'm the one who rescued you guys out of Egypt. I'm the one who's given you this, cast, this, this palace. I'm the one who's done everything for you. I don't need you making me anything. But God recognizes David's heart. And he recognizes that David wants God to have something better than what he has. And so this is where we get what's called the Davidic covenant. And basically in the Davidic covenant, uh, it is... It should be 2 Samuel, sorry guys. Uh, in 2 Samuel uh, 17, uh, B through 16, essentially God says, I'm going to give you an eternal throne. Not David himself, but his lineage. There's going to be one who's going to come who's going to be a forever king. And God's going to give him this land and this kingdom. And Israel knows of this promise. This is, called, this is what we call the Davidic covenant, right? This is what so many people hold on to, that one day God is going to establish his rule through the lineage of David. But David, again, is just a man. He's not perfect. And it says in the Davidic covenant also that one of your immediate offspring, Solomon, is going to be the one who builds a temple for me. And that, and that is what happens. But David himself falls into sin, he has an affair, and then the woman gets pregnant, and then to cover up his sin, he has that guy murdered, right? He doesn't always trust in the Lord. Sometimes he trusts in his own military might because the enemy's closing in, and it gets scary. But David continues to come back to the Lord. We see this in his prayer. Psalm 51.4 says, Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight, for you have proved right... And what you say in your judgments against me is just. See, David recognized, even though he sinned against Bathsheba, even though he had Uriah killed for his own sin, ultimately, ultimately, his sin was against God because God is the author of morality. God is the one that, in his mind, truly mattered. And so David is continued and lauded as a great, one of the great kings of Israel. And when he passes, there are many kings that come after him, mostly bad, right? And after his son Solomon comes along, the nation of Israel cries out. They're sick of the taxes. Remember I talked about the taxes that Samuel warned about, right? That God warned about and said, hey, you're not going to like it. You're going to feel oppressed. Well, sure enough, that's what happens. And the nation of Israel splits, and then there's more bad kings, and then they're, hand, they're not following God, and so God hands them over to, to be judged. He allows their enemies to take over. And the nation of Babylon comes in and crushes them and kicks them all out of their land. They're exiled. The nation of Israel is no more, except they have a hope. They have a hope in that Davidic promise that was given to them. They have a hope that a king is going to come. And God gives them prophets to remind them of this truth. In Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish, uh, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The nation of Israel, even though they're scattered, 
has some of them, there's a remnant of them that are preserved and they're putting their faith in God that God is going to hold true his promises. And then God miraculously brings those people together, but they're still not a king. And years go by. And we call it the 400 years of silence until one day that silence is broken in the form of a baby. And that's why it's significant why Matthew 1, the book of Matthew starts, Matthew 1, with a genealogy linking David to Jesus. Because Jesus is going to be that king. And then who do we see come on the scene in Matthew 2? The Magi. Matthew 2, 1 says, And Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the, in the days of King Herod. Wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king? Born king of the Jews. For we saw his star uh, at its rising and have come to worship him. And Jesus begins, you know, Jesus lives his life and he begins his earthly ministry. And he's doing miracles to validate and to show, I am that one. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the king who's come. And the people, many people believe, but a lot of people don't. And then we have, at the, towards the end of his life, we have what we call Good Friday, right? And we see that picture of him being a king again, where he comes into the city riding on a donkey. They think he's marching on Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman rule. Jesus comes into the town. They say, Hosanna, blessed is uh, he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. The nation of Israel is recognizing him as the Messiah. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, do not be afraid daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. We kind of know what happens next. Jesus has one of the most gruesome coronation ceremonies. A crown of thorns is placed on his head. And he's given a robe, a royal robe, and he's beaten. And then he's lifted up, not on a throne, but on a cross. And the proclamation that's given is nailed above him saying, Jesus, King of the Jews. Jesus was the king. And the, many of the followers of Jesus backed away and they said, oh, this isn't what we expected. Like, our hope is lost. They were afraid. This one they thought was going to overthrow their government. But God wasn't there then to do to, to rescue them the way they thought. See, God realized something that they didn't. He recognized that they were hopeless. They were hopeless in their sins. They were hopeless to obey. They were hopeless in earning righteousness. They, there was no hope of them paying the penalty of their sins, which was death. And so God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to be the payment for those sins. So that by putting their hope in him, by putting their faith in him, they could have eternal life. The picture that we see of kingship throughout the Bible, God, God was always the king. And one day God will come back and he will rule again and he will establish his rule among us. And we will all recognize him as king. Every knee will bow. But in the meantime, are we recognizing him as king? What does it mean for Jesus to be our king? Do we look to the world for answers? Are we pursuing solutions and answers again, uh, apart from him? Or do we follow where God leads? Do we walk in obedience to him? 
Do we look to him as being sufficient? And are we placing our hope in him and in his future return? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, forgive us for the times where we haven't recognized you as king, where we haven't recognized you as the authority in our lives. Lord, forgive us for times where we've, we've developed our own schemes and set our own standards. Lord, help us to walk in obedience to you as an act of worship. Not because we're trying to earn righteousness, Lord, but because you are worthy and you deserve our praise. Lord, as we continue this holiday season, as we, as we celebrate Christmas, Lord, I pray that we don't get lost in the things of this world, but that we focus on celebrating and worshiping you as our king. In your name we pray, amen.